Well, thanks for being at Grace. Are you ready for the game? Okay, this is a big day. I mean, you got church, you got communion, you got the whole, you, we, our worship, all that stuff. And then you get to go home and watch Super Bowl 50 with the Broncos play. I mean, that's, that's a good day right there. So, by the way, how many of you are rooting for the Broncos? All right. Yeah, good. And that other team? Any, anybody? Did I not just mention the importance of unity? Did, did we not just talk about that earlier in the service? Wow, how quickly people forget. Yeah. Yeah, well, the Broncos aren't exactly the favorites. You know how that goes, but that just makes victory all that much sweeter. So we'll see. We'll see who's gloating next Sunday or crying or whatever the case may be. So uh, we'll see. We are, we've been in this series um, talking about doctrine what God reveals about himself. We've talked about God as Trinity. God makes, God speaks. Uh, we've talked about God transforms. Last Sunday, we talked about the cross. God pays. We kind of touched on just a few minutes ago, God gives. But what we're focusing on today is God owns. God owns. And we're talking about the doctrine of stewardship. Now, stewardship... What that means, it's just a fancy word that means um, taking care of or managing what belongs to somebody else. That's what stewardship is. And God's told us that we, as his followers, we're all stewards of basically his stuff. Now, when I throw out this word stewardship, I know some of you are kind of like, oh, oh, I see what's coming here. Because when we talk about stewardship, that means we're talking about giving. And sometimes that makes people a little nervous. And especially if you're new, you know, you're going, oh, what are the odds? You know, here I am. We're at church talking about giving. You know, hang on. And, and that is kind of odd because we don't talk about it all that much. So I don't know what's going on there. But we're glad you're here. And here's the deal. Why talk about it at all? Well, because of this. As, as we look at this topic, and I look at this topic... There are things that I would want to know if I were you. And so because of that, we teach the whole counsel of God. And part of that is teaching about stewardship. So that's what we're doing. And, and we're going to kind of launch into this. So, so here goes. First of all, we need to understand that God, a very simple, God owns everything. Everything. God owns everything, including what we have. And I'm not saying that God's against personal property or anything like that. No, God understands that. That's why he's given us a commandment not to steal what belongs to somebody else. But God is the creator of all things. And as creator, he really has ownership of all things. And by the way, that includes us. God owns us, our lives and also everything that we have. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And God created everything that we see. And God created us. And he created us in his image. Which amazingly meant that he created us with a free will. So that we could love. You can't love without freedom. So he gave us freedom so we could love. But... As people, we've all misused that freedom 
to rebel against God and do our own thing and not follow God in, in, in the way we ought to live. We've all rebelled that way. And because of that, we, we should all be punished for that because God is perfectly just, and, but God's made a way through the cross for us to be forgiven. And he invites us to place our faith in Christ, what we were just talking about at the communion service. There's another passage in Scripture, Psalm 24, that says this, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The biblical doctrine of stewardship is just identifying the, the concept that God is the owner of all things, and then he gives us stuff temporarily for us to manage. Maybe for our lifetime, that, that's how it is with our lives, or maybe the stuff that we have, God allows us to have it. We get to manage it temporarily. We don't take it with us for God's glory. And stewardship really defines our purpose in the world. It's our uh, divinely given purpose to be involved in God's plan to redeem mankind. God's plan to win us back from our rebellion and be able to forgive us of our sin through Christ paying the penalty for us so that we can be forgiven and justice can be preserved. And... Um, Here's the passage of scripture that I think kind of points out this whole stewardship issue is in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 10. I want to read that for you. Here's what Jesus says. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have been faithful in the use of I'm sorry, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either will hate one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. What, what's going on here? Jesus is giving us a warning. He's saying, hey, he's giving us the opportunity to steward everything he's given us and leverage it for God's kingdom. So we, and we get to kind of figure out on our own how best to do that, but that's what he's calling us to do. But he's warning us, Jesus is, that we can love, be devoted to one and despise another, meaning we are in danger of despising God. And now some people might kind of think about that passage and say, well, this is talking about wealth. Kevin, talking to the wrong person here, I'm not wealthy. Well, first of all, he's not just talking to wealthy people, but second of all, second of all you are wealthy. I mean, we, we talk about it all the time. I, I just re-looked it up to make sure my stats, stats were fresh, but almost half the world lives on $2 a day or less. Almost half the world lives on $2 a day or less. Everybody in here lives on more than that. And basically, we know it, just by virtue, if you're sitting here today, 
you are in the top 5% wealthiest people in the world. So he's not, Jesus is not just talking about wealthy people, but even if he was, it would still apply to us, right? Because we, were all, we are all wealthy according to God's standards. It's funny because a lot of times we tend to sit and you know, spot somebody else in the auditorium or think of somebody we know at work and say, yeah, if I had the money that guy had or that person, that's the wealthy looking at somebody who's even more wealthy. We're, we're all wealthy. And God's called us to be stewards, good stewards. And here's the deal. Jesus is warning us that we'll either worship him with our wealth or we will worship our wealth. That's what he's saying. It's one or the other. There's not much middle ground here. We will worship God with our wealth or we will end up worshiping our wealth. That's the warning Christ is giving us. Well, if God owns everything we have, then here's the question. How do we respond? How should we as stewards respond to God's ownership? Well, the way we should respond is in gratitude. We should give back to God a percentage of everything that he's given us, just an acknowledgement that he is the true owner. But here, here's the thing that I wanted to talk about today that I, that I think is something that we can learn and interesting. There are actually two ways to give to God. One way God hates and one way God loves. So there are two ways to give to God. One is a wrong way to give to God. Giving can even be wrong. And one way is the right way to give to God. Let me flesh that out for you. First of all, the way we can give wrongly to God is that we give to God sort of like we're paying tribute, like a, a, a king would pay tribute to a more powerful king or country. As a matter of fact, um, Jesus talks about some people that I believe are kind of doing that in Scripture. One of the passages um, is Psalm chapter 50. In verse 7, this is a really interesting passage of scripture. You need to kind of tune in because it's sort of counterintuitive, if you will. Here's what God says. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. How many of you remember that song, Cattle on a Thousand? Ah, forget it. Yeah, this is, anyway. So what, what's he saying? He's saying, there's something I'm reproving you. There's something that I don't like. And I'm not reproving you for your gifts. But he's saying, I don't need... Your stuff. The weird thing about that is he's saying, hey, I'm kind of mad at you and, and, it's, and, and you're giving, but I don't need your stuff. But it's kind of like, well, then, but you're the one that told them to give. So when they're giving and making sacrifices, that's because God told them to do that. But now you're saying, don't need your stuff. What's going on there? Well, this is something God's trying to teach us. He's, he's telling us, to give, but he's reminding us he doesn't need our stuff. He owns it already. 
Now, in the next chapter of Psalm, Psalm 51, David, he gets this. And he gets this principle. And basically, here's what he says in verse 16. For you do not delight, he's talking to God, for you, God, do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, that sounds like David doesn't give, but we know from David's life, he gave to God and sacrificed to God all the time. What's he saying? David's saying, hey, I know you don't need my stuff. What you want is not my stuff. You want me. And that's what God's trying to remind us. He doesn't want our stuff. He wants us. He wants our devotion. He wants our heart. He wants our spirit to come. That's what he's talking about, a broken spirit. This is what David's speaking to. This is what God wants from us. He desires a loving relationship. He, he wants us, because we've rebelled, to, to love him. That's why we have free will, so we can freely love God back. That's what he wants from us. He's not after our stuff. He owns everything. It's just he calls us to be generous, but that's just showing, that should just be an outflow Showing what's inside our heart, just an outflow of our changed life and our dedication and our love to God. But sometimes we turn it into like tribute. And here's what I mean by that. Like Israel oftentimes were dominated by foreign kings, right? A lot of times that was Egypt. And so then Israel as a vassal state, more powerful Egypt at the time, They would come up with a gift, a tribute, that they would take to Egypt and present that to them as a gift. And here's what's going on there. They don't want Egypt, who's stronger militarily, to come in and plunder them. So to save Egypt the trouble, they get a gift together and they give it to Egypt to appease Egypt. And and the goal was that the gift would be big enough to appease Egypt and keep them from coming in and plundering the country. But other than that, as small as possible, right? I mean, because basically they want to give Egypt a big enough gift that keeps them from invading, but a small enough, you know, as small a gift as possible that will do the job so they can live their life the way they want to live their life. So they pay tribute as small as possible so they can be left alone and do whatever they want to do. That's not the way that God wants us to give. And I believe there's a guy in the New Testament that Jesus mentions that, and there are several people that kind of display this kind of a heart, this wrong way to give to God. And one of, one of those passages is in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. And Jesus tells this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, the sinner. 
I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see what's happening there? You see the difference? We only know of the two men, one went away justified, and, and we only know that one of those men paid tithes. We don't know about the other guy. But the one who paid tithes wasn't the one. That was the Pharisee. He's not the one that went away justified. Maybe here's a way to illustrate it in today's real world. Probably the, the, the question that I'm most often asked as a pastor about giving is this question, and, and you guys will know it. Pastor, should I give on the gross, a 10% of my gross, or I should give 10% of my net? You know, that's the question everybody wants to answer. And, and some of you have asked me this question, and you'll recall, when I answer that, I never give the answer that somebody's probably expecting me to give, which is gross or net, because I'm sensing something that, that I want people to understand. And so I answer this in all different ways, but all those ways are trying to get them to see something. And here's what I want them to see. That God calls us to be generous. God calls us, first of all, to respond to him with joy. And more important than exactly which one of those things we're, we're tithing on, more important than that is just that we're doing it joyfully, that we're doing it because we want to do it, not because we're compelled to do it, not under compulsion, Paul says uh, to the Corinthian church, but that, that we just, it's a response of joy. It's a response of a changed heart. And it's not like, oh, what is kind of the, the minimum that I need to do in order to be okay with God? That's like paying tribute. Like, okay, God, what is it? What's that magic number that we're okay so I can go on about my business and, and I'm okay? And I can do my own thing. And God's saying, I don't want your stuff. I want you. That's what God's telling us all through scripture. If you were to, you know, if you think about that story Jesus told about the tax collector and the Pharisee, you know, one of those guys would probably, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with asking the question. I'm just saying it's the thinking behind it that, that I try to answer. Because the one that would be more, most likely to ask that question would be the Pharisee guy who's, who's talking about, I give a tithe on everything. And so we need to be careful for that. Well, then if that's the way we shouldn't respond, how should we respond? By the way, misunderstanding this joyful response to God it is really, maybe at the ground root of it, it's when we've lost sight of the gospel. It's kind of like misunderstanding the gospel. Think about what God has done for us. Think about the cross. Our response should be joy, not um, mechanical compulsion, but joy, love, generosity. That's what God wants for us. And... Um, so the reason I think that tax collector would have responded in a lot different way if he had known that he went home justified, as, as Jesus was saying, is because he tells another story about a tax collector. And this, I think, illustrates how we should give to God. And that's when we give to God generously by investing as a steward. Here's Luke 19, 
beginning in verse 1. And this is a story that a whole bunch of you have heard as kids a lot. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Are you ready? All right, Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. And talking about Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he is about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. So if you just get the picture there, um, Jesus now has become a popular rabbi. He's kind of the, the, the new thing everybody's buzzing about. He comes into Jericho. Everybody's excited. They're all packing the streets to see Jesus walk by. No doubt some of them are hoping that maybe he'll stay the night in Jericho and they might be able to host them. In the meantime, there's a chief tax collector. He's a guy that's been commissioned by Rome. He has bid to get this office, so he's probably already a wealthy man. And what he does is he then collects taxes, probably in this entire region, and then he gives Rome the contracted amount, but any more that he gets is his cut. And because of that, tax collectors put a lot of, a lot of squeeze on the people to give money, and, and these tax collectors, as it says, he was rich, probably maybe the most wealthy man in Jericho. And so he hears, no doubt he's heard something about Jesus, maybe some curiosity as the better of him. Here's Jesus in town. He wants to see. He's a, he's a, a shorter man, and he he's can't see because everybody's crowding in. But he's a smart guy, and he realizes, okay, well, here's his route. He's going to go up this way. I'm going to get up ahead where there's no people yet. I'll climb up in, into a short, stout tree called a sycamore, and I'm going to be there, and I'll, I'll be able to have a bird's eye view as Jesus walks by. And that's what happens. And as that happens, the crowd comes by. There's Zacchaeus. And then Jesus stops right under the tree. And Zacchaeus is like, wow, bird's eye view. Best view in the house. Smart guy. And then Jesus turns and addresses Zacchaeus by name. And we don't know if that's just a supernatural thing. Or maybe some people were yelling at Zacchaeus. Not a real well-loved guy. Or what's going on. Or maybe somebody tipped Jesus up. But Jesus, Zacchaeus dresses him by name and says, come on down, I'm going to your house. Boom. Stuns the crowd. This is the Roman collaborator, the tax collector, the sinner. You're going to his house. And that's exactly what happens. And then there seems to be an interval of time. We can't tell from the story. They go on their way. Zacchaeus says he receives him gladly. And so they're at his house. Probably what happens is Zacchaeus would have a very nice house that would involve a very nice courtyard. Typically, people would entertain in the courtyards. Those were semi-public events where people from the town could stand alongside the courtyard and see what was happening and get to hear what the famous person or rabbi might be saying. And so this is probably what's happening. He's received him. He's taken him in. He's having a, a banquet for him. In the meantime, everybody's crowding around the courtyard, anxious to hear what Jesus has to say. And then somewhere in there, we see this response of Zacchaeus in verse 7. So when they saw it, they see Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. 
But somewhere in there, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's interesting because we don't know what the interval of time, how much time Jesus and Zacchaeus spent together before this tax collector has a total changed heart. And by the way, when he makes this pronouncement, you know, maybe they were together a couple hours, maybe four hours, maybe it was before they got to the house, who knows? But when he makes this pronouncement, he's saying, I'm giving half of my stuff to the poor. And then he says, if I've defrauded any, if I've taken advantage of anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times as much. Now, there's something that we don't see in the English that you could see in the Greek. And that is, when he says, if I've done this, it's, a, it's first class. He's saying, I've done this. He's not saying, if, oh, by the way, if anybody could show me where I've taken advantage. Okay, he's saying, no, I've taken advantage of people. And if, and if I've done that to you, I will pay you back four times. I will pay you back what I owe you plus interest plus then some. And here we see this in Zacchaeus' life. And it's interesting because then Jesus responds to that statement by saying, salvation's come. Now, salvation didn't come because Zacchaeus gave money, right? His, his priorities changed from chasing money to following Christ. And what he did with his money was just an outgrowth of what happened in his heart. It's the changed heart that shows up in the story that causes Jesus to say, oh, by the way, salvation's come because he too is the son of Abraham. That's the right way to give. It's the gratitude. It's the joy that spills out, overflows out of our heart because of what Christ has done for us. Could you imagine? Could you imagine at some point subsequent in, in Zacchaeus' life, if somebody, as he has experienced Christ personally change his heart, what if somebody later came up to Zacchaeus and say, Zac, hey Zach, you know what? You gotta, you gotta pay ten percent gross net, whatever you know. They, they kind of made that demand. I think Zacchaeus would just laugh. 10%, a, a, a percentage. God owns everything I have. God's given me life. Everything I have is God. Show me the need, I'll take care of it. A response of gratitude. And that's what, really, I don't mean to make that sound like well, that just doesn't happen in the real world. That happens all the time right here at Grace. We have people in our church that give joyously and sacrificially to build these buildings, to create a chair. Back when we didn't have enough people to sit in all these chairs, even in one service. but they gave to build for others. They give 
to our ministry so we can minister to not only to them, but to other people. And so we see this building going up. And no doubt, I don't know, I think we have a good reputation in our community, but I think sometimes you build buildings and people can get a little, oh, what's going on there? Look at all that money. Well, we built a building. We haven't paid for it yet. You know how that goes, right? We built it because enough of you have said, hey, I'll contribute toward this over the next several years. And the building's not really for us, is it? It's for the people that we intend to reach. You see, being a steward is all about just responding to God joyfully and generously. It's just the overflow of gratitude and joy that spills out. And that's what drives a whole bunch of things that happen here at Grace. That's what drives our ministry. That's why not only do we build this building to make room for other people, specifically teenagers, but then that frees up room for children and adult space that we need on Sundays and Wednesdays. Because we plan, God has, has grown us and we think God's going to continue to do that. We're making room for the people who will come. It's not only that, it's why we send money to missions all around the world. And by the way, when, when people give to this growing with grace thing, the people who kind of signed up and said, and, and it's just their intention, it just helps us to plan. We don't track it or ever jump on anybody. We don't even know. As people done that, they also did that knowing that five to 10% of all the money that came in for building this building or any building would go for buildings not here, away from us, somewhere else, to people who didn't have capital money, that, it would, that we would give them capital money. And because of that, we've uh, purchased a building to be used as a church in the Philippines. We've uh, built a building, a, a, a simple building uh, for refugees on the Burma border of Thailand. We've, another place in the Philippines, Unconnected Ministry had a fire and, and their school was damaged and helped them rebuild that school that just happened in the last couple of months. That's you giving all around the world. And that's not to mention taking care of orphans that we do in Thailand, couple of orphanages homes. Some of us will, will go to see them and taking care of orphans in the Central African Republic. We do that through churches, not through an orphanage, and just different ways, reaching out. That's how, you know, that's, that's how we as a church can um, give, give food to anybody that shows up to our doors at any time here at Grace, and financial help to people in our community. We, we do that with some accountability, but because we want to be wise in what we're doing, but that's all really because of your, your generosity, your faithfulness. And then you think about the unity that God's given us. Besides the whole football thing, you know, scratch that. But the unity God's given us in, in purpose. 
that we're, we've joined together to be a church family, to make an impact in our area and around the world. Why? Because of what God's done for us. Our lives have been changed. We get to see lives change every week here at Grace. And so if you're, if you're serving here at Grace or you're giving here at Grace, let me just tell you thanks. Because your service and your gifts are making a difference here in our community, in our region, and around the world. And we see the result of your service and your gift. We see results every week of God changing hearts, using you to impact people. Thank you. Hey, do we give because we think that somehow buys us, earns us salvation? No, it's just the opposite. God gives us the gift of salvation if we just simply respond in faith. And then our lives are changed. And it shows up in how we live. shows up in our generosity. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for who you are, what you've done for us. Thanks for loving us, Lord. And Lord, you have dumped generous amounts of grace to where our cups have overflown. Lord, you have drenched us with your love and your grace. And there's no other way for us to respond than to overflow with love and grace to other people. God, thanks for loving us like that. God, thanks for bringing us together as a church family bringing us together. We call ourselves Grace Community, and we are a community of people who have been touched by your grace. Lord, and we've been changed. And Father, if there's anyone here who's not crossed that line of faith, has not responded to your invitation to trust in Jesus, your Son, and Him alone for their salvation, we pray this would be the day that maybe even today, before they leave, they'd go back to, to room one and, and settle that right now, like so many indicated they did last Sunday. God, thanks. Thanks for loving us. Help us to be the church you want us to be together, united in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Enjoy the afternoon. Enjoy the game tonight and root for the Broncos. All right. <laughs>